Can you now open up your Bibles, your apps, or whatever that might look like? Um, Well, a Bible probably would be needful to do this. We're going to be looking at two sections of text. One is in the book of Philippians, which we're starting a new series in, which I'm very excited about. And we're going to be looking at Acts 16 a good chunk of the time. And so, um, however that looks like for you to put a finger there, um, we're going to be reading here in a moment. And we're going to, we're going to be diving into this, this uh, wonderful letter. Um, before then, uh, a, little, a little Chaska history. Um, I, home is, I've lived in Chaska. Home has been here as a resident for about six years now. But I live in Chanhassen. Of course, the church has been here and we've been serving and been in this community for over 20. And so I've been here for a little part of Chaska history. Um, but I wanted to kind of dig a little bit more, and so I took a little trip to the Chaska Historical Society Center in downtown this week. If you've never been there, it's a very cool little spot. Um, it used to be an old stable next to what used to be the hotel downtown. Um, but European-American uh, settling began around 1776, mainly German and Swiss immigrants, if you didn't know that. Um, and it actually began around in Carver County and eventually drifted to, to, uh, to Chaska, um, the river playing a major role in all of that settling. Yes, it used to be like Shaska, H-A-S-K-A, and it comes from a Dakota word meaning uh, firstborn son. Um, the, the many of you probably know, brick making was one of the first established sort of things that, that made Chaska thrive. There's buildings in Minneapolis actually with bricks that were used from uh, Chaska. The old clay quarry, which is down at Fireman's Park, is, you know, my kids swim down there. That used to be the old quarry where they pulled clay from. But in those early days, it was establishment of businesses, schools, shops, and as well as churches, churches have a history. I found one resource that described some of the very beginnings of this. It said, missionaries visited the Chaska area before settlement, uh, and one was noted a mission in 1843, but this was the summary. They received no encouragement here and pushed on further up the river. (laughs) Those missionaries just moved on. But eventually settlers came in and there were there was established groups of people, oftentimes from various early denominations. The first one was the Moravian Church in 1858. They sent Reverend Erdman to pastor a very small group of people here, and they met in the schoolroom, in the courtroom, in the city hall, and or in a house. Eventually they built a facility, shortly became uh, there was Guardian Angels, Catholic Church, St. John's Lutheran Church following that. And now we have variety of denominations and um, likes of us here in Chaska. But I would just, as I was reading all this history, I would just love to just step back into history, to peer back and just hear what, what, what did the preaching sound like? What, what, what kind of gospel was being communicated in these communities as they were establishing these churches? Or, or what did the new converts look like? How did they do mission and how did it shape the community, the, the city itself? How did the, the gospel shape Christ-like followers and spread into everyday life? Well, I don't know those stories. I was able to read just small tidbits of what that looked like. But, but I do know that in this room right now, there are a bunch of stories of how the gospel came into your life. We have a, a story. We, as a community, a cross of grace, you each have a gospel story. You each have 
a church history story. And we, we look at the book of Philippians, uh, which is, was light years earlier than any young American church when this letter was written. They, they have a story. This church in Philippi has a story. They, these were real people in a real community with real situations and a real reality of what God did through the gospel in them. And so we get this gift of a letter to a church, a, a small church, words from the Apostle Paul to a church he planted, a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they are God's words to them that were relevant to them then, and what is amazing is they are God's words to us today. And we get this amazing gift as well to hear how this church all started. And so today as we kind of start this series, I want us to allow this first sermon to be sort of a setup where we're going we're gonna to peer back into their history and set up the occasion of this letter, what, what was going on in this church, why was Paul writing to them, some themes that inform the letter, and then in turn, helpfully set us up to come towards this letter with more understanding and what God would want to connect to our life and to our church. And so, a few thoughts, and then we're going to read, read from Acts 16, and then we're, we're going to pray. But, but before we start, uh, what's going on in this, this location? Who, who are these people? What is this place in Philippi? Well, the, the city of Philippi is in modern-day Greece. It was uh, the largest city in a Roman province in Macedonia. It was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. And there's a vast history of battles that took place. One was when the armies of the loyal, loyal to the murdered Julius Caesar uh, defeated the rebel forces in 42 BC. And this in turn created this sort of outpost where veteran soldiers would settle and retire there. And so it became this sort of colony that was referred to as Rome in miniature. So it was a Roman colony, so it had all of the, all of the, the freedoms and laws that citizens would experience in Rome, so no taxation from Rome, but this came along with all of the, the sins and the paganism that came with Rome. But what about this church? What about these, these people that this letter was written to? Well, we all love a great superhero backstory. Well, we, we get to dive into the, the super Philippian backstory today, and it's found in Acts 16. So Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he is traveling with Silas, and they're on their move, and they pick up this young leader who's a, a Jew, Greek, Christian, a young man named Timothy, and we discover that, that Luke joins them on this journey, who's the author of the book of Acts. And so as we read in this, this chapter, you'll see we or us, and that refers to Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And so let's settle in and let's read this backstory. I'm going to read a chunk of text, so just kind of just settle in. Uh, it's a wonderful story. It's a familiar story, but I, I want it to just kind of land on us in awe afresh. So we're going to pick up in verse 16 this morning. And, uh, and we're going to continue on. And so, verse, uh, I'm sorry, not 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul at night, a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we, went, we made a direct voyage to the Simothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the, woman, to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by her fortune-telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her the very hour. And when owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disrupting our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept as practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering their jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And when it was the day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and now go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and they do now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them 
and departed. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we open up your word and we hear of this amazing story and we look to this letter to the Philippian church, Lord, you, you have wor- these words for us to intend something for us in our lives and in our church. Um, we open up this word that is, is relevant, that is truth, that are words from God to us. And Lord, we want the intended purposes you have for us through these words to, to have its way, to have its way in strengthening us personally, to have its way in strengthening us as your church here, Cross of Grace. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and you would speak your word to our hearts. We would hear of Jesus. We would be reminded of who we are in Christ, and it would motivate change in our life. It would motivate hope for us, and Lord, it would bring joy to us as your people. And so do this, Lord, for your glory and for our joy as your church. Amen. Amen. Well, what a story. Maybe a familiar story to you, maybe new, uh, but I want to draw our attention to, to four significant events from this, this narrative we just uh, went through, and, and it's going to help us push into Philippians. Now, this is referred to as what we, the Macedonian call. Uh, Paul was traveling in Asia, modern-day Turkey, and they're going from here to there on mission, and it says the Spirit forbid them to speak the word there. So they traveled further west, and again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to, to minister there. And so eventually, they moved their way all the way to the coast. And Paul has a vision, a dream, and there there's a man urging them to come over to their area, to Macedonia, to help us. And it's in that vision, it, can, it says they concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, before any, any ministry has happened in Macedonia, I just want to just stop and think about what God was doing to get the message of the gospel to this city. Paul and his team, they had plans for ministry, and yet God had other plans for ministry. I mean, th- there was so much ministry that they could do and put their hand to, but God had a specific plan for their ministry. Apparently, it's about like 400 miles that they traveled to eventually get to that area of Philippi. All these things that they could be doing here and could be doing there. And Jesus, God the Father, and the Spirit had plans for them. And I don't know how some of this forbidding took place, if it was God speaking audibly to them, if this was visions, if this was impressions, but either way, they, they yielded to the leading of God to a better plan for them. And note what, this wasn't like a, just a rogue decision that Paul made. It, it was a, notice the we, the concluding that God had called us to go to Macedonia to preach the gospel. I love this little picture of team ministry, and that's what it should be among God's people. And even when we are sensing leading towards something, it is helpful for us to bring others into that. And that's what they did. They collectively submitted to what God's plan was. 
Now, as I just think about all of the good that they could have done, and the Lord had a better plan, I just, I, it's easy for us just to overlook all of the things that we could be putting our hands to, but knowing that God has something specific at times that we, we are not aware of, but God is aware of. So not all of the good things we could put our hands to are the things we should put our hands to. God stops us many times in our life, the things that we think we should be putting our hands to, things that are good, but God has something better. God has something better for us. And I don't know what that has looked like for you, the things that God has stopped you, the Lord has stopped something for you. And it's sometimes not until the end that we look back with hindsight and say, thank you, God. Paul didn't know that. This team didn't know that until after they arrived in this city. But God had something good planned. So maybe there's something you're wrestling with right now that feels like God is, is stopping. He's saying nope to circumstances, situation. They closed door. Acts 16 is helpful for us to remember God's doing something. And in those hinderings, we can rest that God has something better on the other side of that. So what happens? God had a bigger plan, a better thing, and they eventually get to their destination. They take a ship to Neapolis. They, they take about a 12-mile trek into Philippi, and then they're there for a little bit, and it's on the Sabbath. Now, Paul would oftentimes go into the synagogue to reason about Jesus and, and tell of the gospel, but maybe there wasn't a synagogue present there, so they find a place where there are some people who worship Yahweh that are gathering for prayer, which they end up at this river outside the city with some women praying. And we're told that a woman named Lydia, who was a seller of purple goods, probably a cloth, and this dye that would make things purple is very expensive. So she, she, Lydia was probably a very competent, wealthy businesswoman. And she handled maybe trade between there and where she was from in Thyatira. And we're told that she's a Greek woman, but she's a worshiper of God, meaning she was a God-fearer. She was not a Jew, but she worshiped the God of the Jews, but she did not know Jesus. And Paul is communicating, he's sharing about Jesus, and it says that God opened up her heart to hear the words and pay attention to these gospel words. She was gripped by the gospel message of Jesus. This is really important for us to understand how, how salvation works. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke did not open up her heart. Even Lydia didn't open up her heart. It, what does it say? It said God opened up her heart by the Holy Spirit to understand this gospel message. And she experiences the saving work of God. And not just her, she was baptized, and it says her household as well heard the gospel, believed, and was baptized, and they lodge at her house. Lydia likely plays in her wealthy position, plays a role in supporting ministry and maybe this housing this tiny church. So, witness God's sovereign leading, we witness God's salvation of Lydia and her household, and then we read about a slave girl who is demon-possessed. She's used as a fortune-telling cash machine. And it says that 
they, what she was saying became annoying to Paul. What was she proclaiming? She was proclaiming truth. They were servants of the Most High. They were proclaiming salvation. But for, for Paul, he didn't want a demon to be the voice of speaking this truth, and he shuts it down. He, he speaks deliverance, uh, the delivering words of Jesus Christ and the power of God. This, this young girl is delivered, and she is set free. This ensues a problem. Uh, the owners of this, this slave girl, they freak out. They start stirring up the, the town. Dis- they say they're disrupting the, the Roman law, but in reality, they're just ticked off that they're losing business. And they drag their, them before the officials, and the t- crowds attacking them. They tore g- their garments. They beat them with rods. They fasten their feet in stocks. And we come to this very well-known story of Paul and Silas. They're now beaten, they're now bloody, they're now locked up in prison. Now, I just, we just got to put ourselves in Paul and Silas's shoes for a moment. I mean, they, they had a very real opportunity to be confused about God's will in this moment. I mean, they just, they were withstood by the Spirit to go from here. They were forbidden by the Spirit to go there and eventually found themselves what they heard, they thought was a vision that they should go to Macedonia and they're there now in Philippi and, and now they're in prison. Did we miss God? I mean, I could, could it be that that would be a conversation they, they could have had? Paul, Silas conversing, wait a minute, I... We were following God's will, and now we are here in prison, beaten, attacked by a mob, and now we're in shackles. God, didn't, we were following your leading. How is this suffering part of that? There could be opportunity for doubt, for anger. Did we follow Jesus? Did we miss Jesus? But what is Paul and Silas's response in the thing of this? They responded with trust and worshipful praise. At midnight, praying and singing hymns to God, and it's, it, it wasn't a quiet worship, and all the prisoners are listening in to this worship moment. It says an earthquake took place, their chains fell off, the doors were open, and the jailer awoke. Who knows what he was doing? I mean, I was I'm hard sleeping, whatever was going on. But he awoke, and it's dark. He assumes everyone escapes, which means uh, a, probably a grueling punishment for him, maybe his own death. So instead of going through all of that, he takes his sword. He's going to fall on that, commit suicide. Paul stops him, and the jailer ends up falling down, trembling before them, begging him, what must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he responds in faith. He wastes no time serving them, cleaning up their wounds, feeding them, bringing it to his family. His family then hears the word. They respond in faith to Jesus and they're baptized. And it says that he rejoiced along with all of his house. I, I wonder as I hear this story, just that little note about the prisoners listening in and this intense response from the jailer. It doesn't tell us that the, any prisoners were saved, but they didn't escape. They were, they were captivated by something. It, could it be possible they also experienced some reality of, of saving faith as well? So here they are. Here they are experiencing the saving work of God in 
the city of Philippi. And we're not going to read the rest of this or point to the rest of this narrative, but they regroup, they gather again at Lydia's house, they're encouraged, and they continue on their mission. Now, we we should, as we read this text, just be stunned by the sovereignty of God and the purposeful love of God to move his saving message to this group of people. His plans, I mean, Paul didn't dream this up. He didn't he didn't get creative with what he wanted to do. He, he was following the leading of God to bring the gospel message to this little town that otherwise would have not heard of Jesus whatsoever. And God chooses in his design plan to accomplish this in a variety of ways. Some quiet people praying by a river or other purpose accomplished by his servants being bound and beaten in a prison. This is amazing. This is amazing, and this is the very start of this group of believers in the Philippian church. And it wasn't a thousand people. It wasn't a church gathered, a massive cathedral or a mega church building. It was, it was a small group of people in a living room or a large courtyard, possibly at Lydia's home. Look at, look at who he brought together. Lydia, a capable, wealthy businesswoman her household, a Roman jailer and his household. We will know very soon that Paul is writing from a prison being guarded by Roman soldiers, and he is now pointing to this fact, the fact that his imprisonment is leading to the gospel going forward, and, and here God is saving Roman soldiers. And it's very likely that this slave girl was also part of this very small beginning this, this slave girl once used as a token of Satan, exploited, used, and abused, now delivered from demonic oppression, now a sister in the Lord. What other, what other way could this odd collection of people be added to God's church? I mean, isn't, isn't this what God's church should, should look like? A mashup of all kinds of people, of ethnicity, of wealth, genders, backgrounds. This, this, what would be incompatible group, God brings together. A wealthy upper class woman, a slave class, government workers. All coming together by the power of God's work of salvation. By the Spirit in the name and glory of His Son, Jesus. United in Christ and now brought together as God's community. Only only God can pull this together. Only God can pull these kinds of people together. We should be amazed by this. We we should just be taken back and just just soak in and say, Lord, this is amazing. This is amazing. What God forms and creates. And, And I think Part of that is what we'll see in Paul's affection for these people and even the praise and affection that is lifted out of Paul and Silas in a prison is because they knew the extent of God's generous saving hand of what he truly did to accomplish this. When we truly know and feel the grace and the costly thing that God does, we, we treat that with great gratitude. If I am given a gift from, from a grandparent that was a treasured heirloom from a past, I am going to treat that very, very differently than if somebody gave me a dollar store toy 
and didn't really care anything that I did, uh, did with it. There is something about what it cost and who it was from that rises our affection. When we think about the, the, the nature of it, the costly thing of that, our gratitude, our appreciation, our affection, our love, our, our, our care for that thing is lifted. Now, I, I've heard stories of, of a lot of church plants. I know people who've planted churches, and I've heard really amazing stories, but I, I don't know if I've heard of one quite like this where prison doors were ripped open and the foundation of prisons were shaken. But, but it doesn't minimize God's work in every church when he gathers and saves his people. It's easy for us to compare and somehow raise the value of that thing and maybe minimize what God has done in our midst. But, but, but if we just took a moment, I, and I want you to do this, I want you to just pause and consider the people around you, the people in front of you, the people behind you, the people next to you, to your left and to your right. If we perceived, saints, that those people around us, that it took the same degree of power, of miraculous work and saving work of Jesus Christ, that the costly sacrifice, the resurrection power of Jesus, just like this jailer, just like this slave girl, the same mercy and grace for the people around you right now. How does that not shape? our affection, our praise for the Lord, for what he does, and our appreciation and love and affection for those people next to us. It will have a great impact. I think we, can, we need to just remember that. We need to thank God for that. So this is the backstory of Paul's relationship and what I believe lifts his affection and his appreciation and stewardship of this little church. So this is, this is sort of the, the background, and now let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to consider some of the occasion now of why this letter is coming to them at this time. So fast forward, Paul is now in prison, probably in Rome, and so it's likely maybe 10, 12 years since his, this first visit and, and planting of this church. He has visited Philippi numerous times since then, but it has been some time since he has been there. He was there to see its birth, and over the course of time, we will see throughout the letter that, that he, they were paramount in supporting gospel ministry for Paul, practically, with, with uh, support and funds as he traveled, their prayers, their financial giving. And so they became aware that Paul is now in prison and they want to send a gift to him, they, and they want to report to, to Paul how they're doing. They're, they're facing some struggles, so they want to report that to him, and they want to get a report on how Paul is doing. So what they do is they send one of their trusted church members, Epaphroditus, and they give him a gift financially for the mission of Paul, and they're going to send with Epaphroditus the update of where the church is at and an opportunity to hear a report from Paul. So Epaphroditus travels, he falls sick actually on his way, so ill that he almost dies, but God restores him, and so Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to the church with a letter to encourage them, to update them, uh, update the church on how he's doing, and to answer them in the needs and situations that they are going through. And so this is how Paul begins his letter. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy... Servants 
or slaves of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins his letter with common features of a Greek or Hellenistic letter that lists the author and who it's from, the recipient, who it's to, followed by a greeting or a blessing. And this is then led into possibly a prayer or intentionally addressing and teaching the reasons and situation that's going on in the church. And so the letter is from Paul and Timothy. There's this joint writing from him as well. Remember, he was there at that plant And the church has great affection for Timothy, as we will see later. They long for Timothy to return as well to the church. And he identifies Paul and Timothy, their selves, as slaves or servants of Christ Jesus. Now, the the Apostle Paul could have led out with a, a challenge of his authority or an establishment of who he was. He was the founding apostle of that church, but, but he understood his rule was one of leadership, but it wasn't one of hierarchy. It was one of servitude. He wanted to be like his Savior, Jesus. As we were reminded over and over again in Mark that Jesus came not to serve, but to uh, be served, but to serve. Paul was, was leading out in what he wanted that church to be shaped in and how he wanted to care and steward and lead them. And as we will see in chapter 2, 7, that, that Jesus took on a form of a servant. He wanted to serve that church as Jesus does, his people, as an example. And he greets them as a servant. He greets them and refers to them as saints. In the New Testament, this refers to God's God's elect, His chosen people. This is how the New Testament speaks of Christians, not an elite special force, but all Christians who have been made holy, acceptable, set apart by faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, you here are a, a saint. You're a saint. You are made holy by faith in Jesus Christ. And it is all the saints that He is writing to with all the overseers or elders and deacons. These are the, the two offices in the church, pastors or elders. Uh, we would say elder and pastor is the same, and deacons, those who would serve the practical ministry, through past practical ministry in the church. So Paul's writing to them and speaking of the saints with the leaders. He's recognizing a diversity of gifts. And what we will see as a theme very shortly in the letter is, is a call for unity in the church. And this is on the onset of his letter. He, he wants them to be together, seeing them be seen unified in Jesus together, on mission together. So he's writing to the saints and the leaders, and, and he's writing with, with great affection for this church. I don't know when, when's the last time, maybe just think, the last time you received a letter, a handwritten letter from somebody. For me, it's, it's been a very long time. I've ever seen maybe a, a thank you card, but a letter, I, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I received one. But I do remember that uh, because we're a very digital age, a direct, a direct message DMing is, is probably 
more the more the reality but it, there's a problem about it capturing affection and relationship i as i was preparing i was reminded of um, a friend i had in in throughout junior high into to high school his name was was jimmy jimmy z and um, he moved my ninth grade year i lived in england he moved back to the states and uh, we corresponded for quite a while um, and uh, as a good, good friends would, and we'd communicate updates, what was going on. Usually they were probably just very common realities of what teenage life was uh, as ninth and 10th graders. But he was an artist, and I, I was into art, uh, and, and uh, so he, we would write each other and, and embellish the letters with all kinds of, of, of drawings or what we thought was good art. Um, but I remember receiving these letters, and it just, like, I just sensed affection. Like I felt, man, I have a good friend. I, I feel loved by this individual. And I, I wanted to communicate the same thing as I wrote back to him. You all probably have your own story if it's a parent or, or a loved one. But here, Paul is writing not just simply to bring information to this church, but to communicate his affection for them, his love for them. The, the letter is actually referred to as a, as a family letter, the way it's structured, a letter of friendship in its style. It's rich with infect, affections. You, you see it actually in verse 1-8 where he, he yearns for them with Christ's own affection. In chapter 4-1, he, 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 this church is those whom he loves and he longs for. He wants to be with them. He desires for their cheer and their glad, gladness, chapter 2, verse 19. He desires their safety and their joy, chapter 3-1. Paul loved this church. He was writing to them because he loved them. And he, he was writing to them, though, to communicate out of his love, not just sentiments, but things to address in them as a church, to help them, to serve them, to encourage them. A snapshot of this is seen in chapter 1, verse 27. Remember, Epaphroditus is going to give a report, to, uh, gave a report to Paul of what was going on in the church. Paul corresponds and writes a letter to, to serve them, to hope them, to help them. And we see this in, in chapter 1, verse 27. And this is what was a goal as he's writing to them, and it was his prayer, that they would be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents." So if we could kind of we could kind of distill down some some things that he is given the occasion or the reasons of going on in that that local church here in this one verse. So two things, outside and inside. So not certain of the exact nature of all the sufferings. It was probably multifaceted, but but one of them was that there was pressures coming in from the outside for them. There was sufferings. Remember Paul's writing from prison suffering, and he wants them to stand strong in their suffering. But they're frightened by certain opponents, and they're troubled by certain false teaching. We'll explore, explore that later, but some of that would be known as some false teaching coming in from a group called the Judaizers. Judaizers. They were Jewish Christians. They were demanding Gentiles would, would trust on Jesus, but also adhere still to Old Testament law like circumcision in order to remain faithful to God. 
And then you have, of course, the Roman pressures. This is the same city that Paul had been beaten and imprisoned in, and that is a reality that this church was still experiencing. So they were suffering, they were losing and struggling with joy and steadfastness based on something outside. Also, that he's writing to them for something that was going on internally in the church, inside the church. There, were un- there was unrest in Christian unity at this church in Philippi. Gospel, in the gospel, he would say, calls them to walk side by side, to stand firm in one spirit together. I mean, we heard, and remember, think about the, the, very, ver- the various types of people that were mashed up into this community that God had saved together. There was opportunity for disunity based on that alone, let alone just the sinful tendencies of men's hearts. They needed to grow in Christ-likeness. They needed to be reminded of who they are in Christ and the model of who Christ is and His humility that would unify them in the work of the Spirit, joyfully laboring together in unity in Christ, not given to complaining and grumbling and dysfunction that could be among leaders like Euodia and Syntyche, which we'll see in chapter 4. He knew that this couldn't be, remain unchecked and it must be addressed, and he called them to remember who they are in Christ and what that meant to unite them in Christ. So stuff from the outside, stuff from the inside, and so Paul is going to write and address these things, and there are several themes that he does to, uh, communicates that he weaves into his letter to accomplish this. And we're going to look real briefly at these. And as you study and as you read uh, the book of Philippians, I want you to just consider these, these specific themes. And the first one is the centrality of Christ in this letter. For Paul, Christ is everything. Christ is everything. Their union in Christ leads then to Christ-likeness. For Paul, Christ is the beginning and Christ is the end. Throughout the letter, 35 times in this only 104 verses, we see him refer to Christ. In Christ, 21 times. Paul, his goal and what he wanted for that Philippian church's goal, the ultimate goal, the ultimate price, prize would be Christ. Knowing him, fellowshipping with him, even in his suffering, continuing him, living in him, We see this emphasizing over and over again on Jesus, and yet he draws our attention not just to Jesus, but to the work of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the Trinity actively working. But being in Jesus conforms his people to Christ's likeness in their thinking and their humility and their living, which leads to the next one, centrality of Christ, but into their community. So as I already mentioned this, they're struggling with disunity, and he was calling them to fresh love and humility and their connection as a church. Christ purchases beautiful fellowship. Is this word we, we will see in our letter, koinonia, a sharing, a partnership. Their fellowship as God's people, being in Christ and then being in Christ together leads his church to be shaped by not self-centeredness, but other-centeredness love. So Christ, community, and then a call to suffer well. Paul's imprisonment, as we will see in the coming weeks, 
he says, would lead to the advance of the gospel. And he wanted them to see that their suffering was also an opportunity for Christ to be formed in them and the advance of the gospel. In his suffering, Paul knew to live is Christ, meaning fellowship with Christ, and to die is gain, to be in Christ. And either way, whatever that situation looks like, it is God's call for his people to suffer for his sake. And so he's going to lift our attention to the good and the work of God in and through suffering, and we have hope because there is a future day ahead of us. And lastly, the last theme I'll mention is, is what is known as one of the, the core themes, the main motifs throughout Paul's letter, this, this joyful letter. And it is the theme of rejoicing in joy. And in various expressions, 16 times Paul is going to communicate this, this attention to joy, to rejoicing. That's why he would say in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. It is possible to find joy in God in all circumstances. And it's not because we are happy about our circumstances. It's because our joy is rooted in someone. That is the Lord. And Paul is going to help us move towards that, finding joy in him. Notice our themes even in Paul's greeting in verses 1 and 2. Humility as servants of Jesus Christ His emphasis on Christ, of Christ, in Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants their joy and life to be wrapped up and motivated and shaped by grace. Grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. Unmerited love and favor that brings peace and shalom in our God and our King. He wanted that church to feel and experience that. And God wants us to feel and know and experience that through this letter. So let's consider Philippians and and some of the things that we just even drew our attention to just now, cross of graces. There are things pressing in on us and are realities that are very similar. Sufferings that would provoke us to doubt God's sovereign goodness. Enemies from without, culture that, that could be seen as frightening opponents to our life or to our, our walk or to our hope. Things that would tempt us from fixing our sight on Christ with joy, relational strains that can make us question our unity or that could break down our community and joy together. What's gonna, what will keep us in that? What will center us in hopeful, joyful, becoming more like Christ movements, embodying humility like Jesus that help us not drift from joy in all circumstances, not let us lose sight of a future hope and joy when we are struggling, that we would not get consumed with our American citizenship and country's condition and lose sight of our heavenly citizenship and our hope in our Savior. What what will help us do that? Well, what Paul does and what I think God is going to do through Philippians is help us get our eyes on Jesus again and again and again. So as saints, it comes from who we are, our identity in Christ, which shapes how we live in God's community together in Christ so that we can suffer well for his sake in Christ. 
awaiting our future hope in joy in Jesus, living in his joy that he provides. So Christ shapes our life. Christ shapes our joy. And and Philippians is going to help us see and experience that. I loved looking back at Acts 16 just in detail this, this past week, into, week or two. And just reading of those specific people like Lydia that God knew. As, as God was moving that small team, missionary team through all of those miles and across water and to land in Philippi, he, he had Lydia in mind. He had, he had that jailer in mind. He had that slave girl in mind. All that God did to bring the gospel to them, to express his love, his purposes for that church, for those individuals that he knows, that he loves, that he knew by name. He, he does the same for us today. Right here, the church in Chaska, this cross of grace in 2022. One of the things that helps us with joy in our life is, I think, what the psalmist would pray in Psalm 51, 12, to restore to me the joy of your salvation. To, to remember God's unique, loving, loving work that, wrote, that he wrote his purposes into our story, into our life, so that we would come to know his saving grace and love. Just, just consider for a moment what, what God did to move people into your world. What, who, were, who were the people that were vehicles of truth to your life? At the right time, the, the right people, the right message, that, that God called your name and he, he opened up your heart. Opened up your heart so that you could hear something that maybe you heard a thousand times, but then you responded in faith to Jesus. An amazing story of God's grace, God writing his story in your life. He opened up your heart. He, he delivered you from darkness. He, he made the praise of God seem beautiful to you, and he drew you in, and he made you part of his church. Let us feel the good of that. Let, let us remember the beauty of that. When did God do that? How did he do that? It was an expression of his grace in his love, in his kindness to you, so that you may know Jesus, that you may walk deeper with Jesus. Because we are in Christ, we have, we have hope, and, and, it, and it changes how we live. It moves us forward in joy in Christ, and, and I think that's what he wants to do through the book of Philippians for us, that as Paul would write in chapter 1, verse 27, that he desired for them to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. So that he comes in and he calls us to himself and then he calls us to deeper places as we follow him. That we would run the race, that we would stay the course, as he would say later, that our progress in faith, chapter 1, verse 25, that our progress in the gospel would be a priority as God's church. And that we can look around us and whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we can find ourselves in our identity in Christ and have resolve for joy as we move towards Him. Joy, 
Joy in him and joy that we are not alone, that we have, we have partnership. We have koinonia together as God's church right here, cross of grace. And who do we keep our eyes on in order to do that? It, it is Jesus. And Philippians does that for us. At the very center of, of Philippians, in chapter 2, Paul is writing and it, it, it crescendos almost to this this peak at the very center, this doxology. It's often been considered at one of the first Christian hymns. It moves from the Son who was in heaven, who, who came down, who, who made himself, humbled himself as a man, and he lived a life, and he moved towards obedient death on a cross, and the Father now exalted him and lifts him up high so that he may be worshipped and bowed down and people would confess him as Jesus. That's where we need to keep our eyes fixed. And Philippians moves our eyes to that and our hearts to that. And that is the path that will guide us into humility, to a cross-shaped life, a cruciform-shaped life. For our joy our happiness in God, that we could invite others into the same thing, that God, through our gospel living and our gospel speaking, God would open up others' hearts to know and feel that as well. That, that's why I'm excited about Philippians, and I'm hoping you experience that as well. I'll end with a, with a quote from commentator Gordon Fee, which I will probably will quote from throughout our our series, he, he wonderfully tees it up with, with this summary. We'll end here. In sum, our letter invites us into the advance of the gospel, the good news about Christ and the Spirit. It points us into Christ, both for now and forever. Christ is the gospel. Christ is Savior and Lord. Thus, Christ is our life. Christ is our way of life. Christ is our future. Christ is our joy. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And all to the glory of God and Father. Amen. I want Christ to be our deeper joy. Christ to be our deeper reason that all of our life gets caught up in. May he do that with us this, this series.